Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Internist's Guide 2, a limited series dedicated to high-yield guidelines in internal medicine. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Alon Weisman from Infectious Diseases on clinical practice guidelines for Clostridium difficile infection in adults and children. 2017 update by IDSA and SHIA. Dr. Alon Weisman is an infection control and infectious diseases physician at UHN. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So before we get started, I thought we'd go through the definitions for our audience for severity of C. difficile. So from the guidelines, um, we break down C. difficile infection into non-severe, severe, and fulminant. So let's start by talking about non-severe infection. So this is defined by leukocytosis with a white blood cell count of less than 15,000 cells per milliliter and a serum creatinine level less than 1.5 mg per deciliter. So we define severe C. diff as leukocytosis with a white blood cell count of greater than 15,000 cells per milliliter or a serum creatinine level greater than 1.5 mg per deciliter. Fulminant C. diff is then defined as hypotension or shock, ileus or megacolon. So looking at the 2021 focused update guidelines on management of Clostridoides difficile infection in adults from the IDSA, can you tell us about the management of non-severe and severe C. difficile infection? So the big difference that has come out in 2021 is that the preferred regimen for initial episodes of CDI is fidaxomycin 200 milligrams twice a day for 10 days, as opposed to this being a, one of other options with vancomycin. And so this being the preferred option is based on the evidence that shows that fidaxomycin is superior to vancomycin when considering the decreased likelihood of recurrence of C. difficile. That's the main reason. The important thing to recognize with fidaxomycin compared to vancomycin is that although there is a lower chance of recurrence with fidaxomycin, it is quite a lot more expensive. So for certain settings, certain hospitalization and uh, patient settings, it may be challenging to prescribe fidaxomycin, depending if the patient can afford it or has coverage. So just a, a very important thing to consider. And outside of fidaxomycin, the alternative that is listed is vancomycin, uh, as mentioned in previous guidelines, 125 milligrams QID for 10 days. And in cases where patients have non-severe CDI and do not have access to either fidaxomycin or vancomycin, in those cases, flagyl is uh, the alternative to those two agents. So the reason that flagyl has generally been de-emphasized in these guidelines is that RCT evidence had, that has been developed since 2000 in the late first decade and then second decade shows that flagyl is inferior to vancomycin on several fronts. One is the resolution of the first illness, and second is of the recurrence of the C. difficile infection. So for both those reasons, there is a clear advantage of using vancomycin. The only rare exceptions, as we said, is if vanco or fidaxomycin is unavailable. And then sometimes maybe use as an adjunct if you are not able to provide vancomycin either orally or rectally for whatever reason. So I understand that fidaxomycin can be more expensive or costly upfront. Can you speak to this a little bit for our listeners about some of the trade-offs from a cost-benefit perspective? So the, it's important to recognize that fidaxomycin costs several thousand dollars and is not always available to all patients as a result of the limitations for being able to pay for the medication. And some hospitals may not have access to the medication as a result. The main, as I mentioned earlier, advantage of having fidaxomycin given over vancomycin is the lower chance of recurrence. And so if you think about how this might help the patient in the future, the overall cost may actually be lower to the system. And this has been shown in cost-effectiveness analyses comparing fidaxomycin and vanco, showing that in the long run, because fidaxomycin reduces recurrence, 
may actually be cost effective. So that's important to recognize, uh, but still it'll be a, a reason for limitation for some patients. With that definition of fulminant C. difficile in mind, thinking about a first episode of fulminant C. difficile infection, how would we then treat that? In cases where patients have fulminant disease, the recommendation is that patients receive vancomycin with a very high dose, 500 milligrams, four times daily uh, by mouth or by NG. And if the patient has an ileus, the recommendation is that the medication be given rectally instead. IV metronidazole can also be given uh, with oral or rectal vancomycin if a patient also has ileus as well. So in those cases, there's really just this one option that's recommended for fulminant disease. And so when we talk about severe or fulminant C. difficile, when should patients be referred on to surgery? Right. So when we're talking about uh, fulminant disease, we're talking about basically three criteria. That's shock, ileus, and megacolon. And the times where you're concerned about this developing is when you're seeing the white count go very high, when you're seeing the fever not resolve, when you're seeing the blood pressure start to fall, other signs of sepsis as well. So these are indications to start thinking about calling surgery or getting surgery involved early. And when you, when you call surgery early, they're going to be assessing the patient and looking for signs that indicate a surgery should be done. Basically, a surgery is reserved for those individuals who have fulminant disease. And fulminant disease indicates that they're likely going to have a worse outcome that may lead to complications related to the colon, such as necrosis, such as perforation, and hence the need for surgery as a prophylactic measure at that stage. To my understanding, there hasn't been any comparison yet of colon-sparing surgery, such as diverting loop ileostomy with subtotal colectomy. What surgery in practice are these patients typically receiving? So the idea behind surgery is generally speaking to get source controls. The infection is confined to the colon, so source control would mean doing a colectomy. That has traditionally been the most common surgery that's been performed on these patients, generally speaking, sparing the rectum or the top part of the rectum. However, there is an alternative surgery that has been done called a diverting ileostomy, that is essentially what you're doing is um, taking a piece of small bowel, bringing it up to the skin, so as to allow you to infuse medication um, into the large bowel through an ileostomy. So this uh, gives the patient approximately seven days of therapy to try to get rid of the toxin, get rid of the, the organism to spare the colon. In other words, this approach allows you to spare the colectomy, which is thought to be you know, related to more complications that patient might experience down the road. And so this therapy, although it has been done and there is some evidence to suggest patients may experience fewer complications, the strength of the evidence is not really there at this moment. So there isn't any direct head-to-head -head RCT evidence to suggest that one procedure is beneficial compared to the other. So, so far it's just observational data when it comes to the diverting ileostomy. So thinking about first C. difficile recurrence or subsequent C. difficile recurrence, what does the 2021 focused update from the IDSA state in terms of management of these? So similar to the initial episode of CDI, the first recurrence, the preferred regimen is again fidaxomycin with a slight change in the recommendation here. So they recommend giving the patient 200 milligrams twice daily for 10 days or to give a short course of five days of twice daily and then uh, every other day for 20 days. In other words, a pulse uh, regimen there or a tapering regimen. So 
this is different from the previous guidelines, which had vidaxamycin and vancomycin listed as two acceptable options. So now vidaxamycin is the preferred. The alternative to vidaxamycin for first recurrence of C. diff is having uh, vancomycin with tapered and pulse regimen and having the uh, vancomycin given for only the 10 days as previously recommended. Notably, there is a adjunctive treatment that can be given. It's called uh, bezlotuximab, and this isn't readily available in many centers in Canada, but it can be given for patients as an adjunct for treatment. For the second episode or subsequent episodes of second recurrence, sorry, or subsequent episodes of C. diff, in this case, there's a variety of options available. Again, fidaxomycin, either for 10 days or the taper and pulse regimen, the vancomycin with, a, with the taper, the vancomycin with a short course of 10 days followed by a course of rapaxamine afterwards, and then fecal microbiota transplantation. So FMT is recommended for additional recurrences if patients have at least two recurrences. In other words, a total of three episodes of C. diff. And then again, uh, adjunctive treatments can be given with bezlotuximab uh, where this drug is available. We talk a lot about the use of PPIs and anti-motility agents in the context of C. difficile infection. Um, what do we know from the guidelines about these and how do we appropriately counsel our patients on this? So the, um, the 2018 uh, guidelines from the IDSA about C. difficile don't come down definitively on one side or the other. They, they do believe that there is some association between PPIs and C. difficile, and that has been shown in some observational studies. However, some of the data is conflicting and there isn't a clear causal link so the, the reason that's important is that there isn't a clear recommendation about whether PPIs should be stopped when a patient is on antibiotics, for example. There's, there's lots of observational studies that have shown perhaps some benefit, but there isn't any clear RCT data on that. And that's why the IDSA provided that recommendation in 2018. So there, there are some clinicians who will practice uh, stopping PPIs as a result when they believe that the risk of C. difficile is higher. So not only for this reason, but for other reasons, it's important to consider whether your patient who's on a PPI has a strong indication for it and to discontinue it if there isn't one. Sounds good. So in terms of prophylaxis for patients with C. difficile infection, is there any evidence regarding this? So when you think about prophylaxis for C. difficile, the way you, you approach the problem is primary and secondary prophylaxis. Primary is when a patient has never had a C. difficile infection. And secondary is when they've already had one. The question becomes how do you prevent a second or third recurrence? The use of vancomycin for prophylaxis and the prevention of C. diff was studied in the primary setting uh, just this year. A, a paper came out in the New England Journal with about 50 patients in each arm showing that there was benefit of using vancomycin prophylaxis. So these patients were high-risk patients, so they were elderly, and they had recently received a course of antibiotics, and now we're receiving a second course of antibiotics. And it was shown that in the vancomycin prophylaxis, arm, the likelihood of recurrence over the next 30 days was lower than in the non-interventional arm. As for secondary prophylaxis, there isn't clear evidence to suggest that prophylaxis is helpful. So we don't have clear RCT evidence in that area showing that if you've had C. difficile before and you're now going to be placed on a second round of antibiotics for whatever indication, that put it, putting you on vancomycin prophylaxis is going to be beneficial. So it's a little bit less clear in that area. So to conclude, there's probably stronger evidence in the primary area than there is in the secondary, and perhaps newer studies are going to show whether that's, you know, clear RCT evidence may benefit, may show benefit in the secondary group as well. And uh, of course, the considerations for why you would or wouldn't give vancomycin prophylaxis would include a patient's tolerability of the medication, a cost of the medication, and then there's also a thought to consider about resistance from other organisms where vancomycin is being used.
Just a practical question. If we're seeing somebody in follow-up and you're trying to assess whether they have a recurrence of C. diff or require subsequent therapy, do you retest patients in terms of their stool sample and how do you best determine whether someone's having a recurrence? Yeah, that's a great question. So when you have a patient um, who's have, let's say, recently recovered from a C. difficile, first of all, there's no test of cure. There's no value in repeating their stool test to make sure that they're no longer having C. diff. Basically, that boils down to a history and physical and determining that they don't have any more watery diarrhea. When a patient is recovering from C. diff, what you typically see is a reduction in the volume of the stool and then beginning of a normalization of the stool caliber. So starting off being very watery to being loose and then formed. Although a significant number of individuals, perhaps around a third of them, will experience post-infectious IBS, which means that the appearance of their stool will not normalize for a long time. And that's important when you reassess a patient who's had C. diff in the past. Basically, what you're looking for is a significant change in their stool caliber. Specifically, you're looking for watery diarrhea. So if a patient who's had C. difficile in the recent past tells you their stool is loose, that is likely associated with their recent infection and not likely representative of recurrence of infection. What you're looking for is those very classic signs, so watery stool that's very frequent and that's associated with abdominal pain or cramping. So just, it's important for people to realize that and for patients to be counseled that they shouldn't expect stools to normalize and not necessarily normalize after they've had an infection. And then to monitor for very clear acute changes that suggest watery diarrhea rather than simply loose stool. When we're counseling patients, um, let's say who are going home um, and have either had an episode of C. difficile or live with others, is there anything from an infection control standpoint that we can help counsel our patients or reassure them on? Yeah, it's a challenge to have patients prevent transmission at home, given the likelihood that they're sharing uh, spaces, including washrooms. Basically, what I advise patients is to use kind of common sense approaches, including hand hygiene and environmental cleaning. We don't necessarily provide patients or ask patients to use sporocidal agents when they're cleaning their house. It was important to realize from a C. difficile infection control point of view is that once you've had 48 hours of essentially normalization or beginning of normalization of your stool away from diarrhea, then you're not likely to be infectious. Uh, or highly infectious. That's not to say that you can't transmit still at home, but uh, people just need to use kind of common sense when they're home to prevent, to prevent transmission. Uh, hand hygiene is very important, especially using soap and water after using the washroom. And uh, cleaning surfaces is also very important. Thanks. Um, and while we're kind of on that point, um, what should healthcare professionals know from an infection prevention and control perspective? And what precautions should be taken when seeing patients admitted with C. difficile? So if you're seeing a patient in the hospital and they have new onset watery diarrhea, either just on admission or particularly when they're already been admitted to hospital for several days, you should have a low threshold to order a C. difficile toxin in order to diagnose C. diff. Once, you have, once a patient develops watery diarrhea, it's important that you order the appropriate testing and then you isolate them on contact precautions. So C. difficile is transmitted by the fecal oral route. So contact precautions will hopefully prevent the transmission from the patient to other patients and to other healthcare workers, which is less common. So what that means is placing the patient in a single room, generally speaking, and having uh, healthcare workers use uh, glove and gowns when interacting with them. If the patient is confirmed to have C. difficile, that also has implications for environmental services who will use certain sporocidal agents to clean the room while the patient's there and then after the patient has been discharged. So the way we prevent C. difficile transmission in hospitals, one of the key things is to recognize C. difficile early when we see it in our patients and to isolate them promptly. And just from a practical standpoint, for our understanding, when patients are admitted and they are found to have C. difficile infection, are they 
isolated throughout the course of their stay, or is it thought to be that they are not infectious after a certain point in time? Right. The likelihood of infection uh, will drop dramatically after their stool has improved, after we see clinical improvement over the course of 48 hours in their uh, clinical syndrome, which includes the appearance of their stool after it's no longer watery. So that's when uh, typically infection control practitioners will reassess the patient and typically remove their isolation. So you might find that a patient's isolation is discontinued prior to completion of their therapy. You might even find that their isolation is discontinued prior to complete normalization of their stool. Um, as I said, it's very common for people not to have normalization of their stool within weeks of having C. diff infection, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're at high risk of transmitting to other patients. So these kinds of things are assessed typically on a day-to-day -day basis by the infection control team. seeing somebody in the emergency department, let's say as a senior resident, and um, they have colitis on imaging, is there anything specifically, you know, other than your pretest probability for, for C. diff based on, you know, recent antimicrobials, et cetera, that would prompt you to empirically treat for C. diff while you're waiting for a sample? So is there anything specifically from an imaging perspective um, that points you towards C. diff-related colitis? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the findings of C. difficile colitis are not specific on imaging, but you may see a pancolitis uh, as you might with other causes of colitis. And so you'd have to put the whole picture together, the imaging findings along with uh, the recent history. Have they had recent hospital exposure? Have they had recent antibiotic exposure? Those are the main questions. The other thing that uh, sometimes rarely is, makes the diagnosis for C. diff is uh, colonoscopy, where you see pseudomembranes, which are pathognomonic for C. difficile. However, that is not not typically the way, very rarely the way that C. difficile is diagnosed. So I would say is if you have an individual, a patient in the, in the ED, let's say, who you're examining, and you have an, even a moderate degree of suspicion that they have C. diff and they're ill in any way, the one approach would be to send off the testing, but to empirically treat them at that moment. Because by the time you get the testing back, depending on what center you have, you may have lost six or 12 hours in terms of treatment. So early treatment, as with several other infectious diseases, is important. So if you have uh, enough, enough risk factors, enough concern, you should be considering C. difficile, not only in hospitalized patients, but it's even more and more common among community-acquired uh, or community cases. So we're, we're seeing a lot of community-acquired C. difficile, and it's something important to consider if the patient has the risk factors. Um, and then just moving to one final topic. So when should clinicians consider referral for patients for a fecal microbiota transplant or FMT? And what trials um, support FMT? So typically we uh, would consider that after the patient has had two recurrences or three total episodes of C. difficile associated diarrhea. At that point, the recommendation from the IDSA is to refer the patient for fecal transplantation. And uh, the evidence for this has been supported um, essentially, what, what the patients that would be enrolled in these studies are patients who've had recurrences, and what has been sh shown is that the FMT reduces the likelihood of recurrence. FMT is not typically used when you have an acute infection. Uh, the evidence for that is lacking currently. What it's used for is when a patient has typically has a resol resolved case, and now you want to prevent the next case from happening. So that's where the role for FMT comes in. Unfortunately, with the current COVID pandemic, it's been challenging for people to get FMT given some restrictions in stool donations and restrictions in generally procedures. So, uh, you know, if you're practicing in a local area, you should find out where uh, patients can access FMTs. Great, thanks. Um, I just wanted to go back to one other thing that we were chatting about earlier when it comes to fulminant C. diff. 
if somebody has an ileus or megacolon, what can we assume about the absorption of uh, vancomycin or fidaxomycin, like through an NG, for instance? Would you assume that the absorption is not appropriate and you would just be using IV flagell and rectal vanco or fidaxomycin? Or what do we understand about absorption in, in that context? Yeah, so that's a very important question. So essentially, when we give somebody medication for C. diff, um, when you're giving them vancomycin orally or fidaxomycin, they're, they're not absorbed into the bodies. So you're delivering the medication directly into the bowel. So if you're giving it orally, essentially what you're looking for is contraindications to oral medications, which is the same for any nausea, vomiting, abdominal distension. Uh, if you cannot give the medication orally or through the NG tube, the alternative would be giving the medication rectally. So there, uh, you're essentially giving the exact same thing, except you're giving it by rectum, hoping that you can get the medication instilled into the colon directly. So in those cases where there's a very severe case, where you have a fulminant case, as we described, hypotension or shock, ileus or megacolon, giving IV flagell should be given in conjunction with that. And the underlying thinking there is that if somebody has an ileus or megacolon, then it's likely their bowel is not moving very well. You're likely not being able to get that banco in there either through an NG or, or, or rectally. And so the IV flagell acts more of an adjunct because IV flagell does have some activity in the bowel. And uh, we shouldn't be confused about IV vanco, which doesn't really penetrate the bowel at all or, or well enough for you to have any kind of effect on C. diff. So IV vanco is not a therapy for a C. difficile. Great. Thank you so much. Those are all my formal questions. Is there anything else that you want to add for our listeners or that you, would, you think would be relevant to our audience? Um, I think just one other thing to add is that when you're to add about the question about the recurrence of C. diff is that you should only test people for C. difficile if you think they've had a recurrence. Similar to urinary tract infection, there's no role for surveillance. It's basically testing on an as-needed basis based on new onset of symptoms. So if you have a patient with a positive C. difficile sample several months after their initial disease, basically what you want to do is assess them on a case-by-case basis. Does this person have the signs and symptoms of C. difficile infection? And if they don't, then they're likely simply colonized with C. diff, which isn't necessarily normal, but doesn't prompt you to have to treat them at that moment. Thank you so much for answering all of our questions. Is there anything else you want to add for our listeners? Uh, no, that's all. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Reichman. Thank you for listening to this episode on clinical practice guidelines for Clostridium difficile infection in adults and children. 2017 update by IDSA and SHIA. Special thanks to Dr. Alon Weisman for joining us today to discuss these guidelines. This episode was recorded and produced by Shaliza Halani. The Internist Guide to podcast series is produced by Catherine Luer and Shaliza Halani. Executive producers Allison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.